Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the worlds of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 228. My name is Cameron English. I am your host, as always, joined again by Dr. Liza Dunn. Liza, what's going on? Nice to see you again. I hope you've had a wonderful week. I have had a wonderful week. It's been very, very busy, as you know. (laughs) I'm getting married next weekend. (laughs) Congratulations. Congratulations. What a special time in a person's life. It's more stressful than almost anything I've ever been through. So. so good. good luck with all that. <laughs> well, oh. we have pra- we've had practice. This is the second time. <laughs> so we decided to make it as stress-free as possible. We're just going to have a fun party. There you go. There you go. Champagne and cake, maybe some uh, some fancy chicken. It's going to be a blast, I'm sure. <laughs> all right. Well, in the meantime, let's uh, let's talk about some science because there's some interesting stuff from the news and uh, one thing that we don't get to talk about very much. So first up, pair bonding, how wedding vows have contributed to human evolution. Next up, prominent tech investors throw support behind vaccine rejectionist RFK Jr.'s campaign for president. And finally, rethinking sustainability. Does nutritional value of dairy offset environmental impacts of milk production? Intriguing stuff. Let's start up here with uh, the story in psychology today. This is by uh, I believe he's an evolutionary psychologist. His name's Glenn Gayher, I want to say. But funny enough, and I didn't know this until after I started reading the story, he's also uh, a newlywed for the second time. I don't know. Do you call it? Is it, an, is it a newlywed if you do it twice? I don't know. In any case, he just he just got married for the second time, and he was talking about how exciting it was and you know, you have this rush of emotion and you're in love and not, you know, all these, all these wonderful feelings that, that anyone who's ever been in a relationship, I'm sure is familiar with, but he, he, he looks at this brief experience, this anecdote, and he says, there's some interesting research here about how wedding vows have influenced uh, human evolution and development of human society. And so let's run through these real quick and then jump in here and, and share your thoughts. So he says, um, it illustrates the importance of monogamy in society. And this, of course, has to do with stability and raising children. And then he talks about um, support. You have you have a life partner, effectively, who's going to be with you through thick and thin. And of course, most vows say something like, you know, uh, you know, until better, for worse, right? Till death, yeah, 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 yeah. There's some variation of that language in pretty much every vow, whether people write it themselves or someone, you know, if it's just a standard. His was from like the the courthouse in Los Angeles County or something. That's right. Even even at so, as something as banal as like you know a government bureaucrat reading a vow, that, you know it's important. And then finally, of course, is love. <clears throat> now I, I, this sounds sort of cheesy, at least to me as I was reading through this. But the point he's making is that there's been research that looks into your psychological state if you are in love, if you describe yourself as in love, and it and it in effect. And the way he puts it is, if you feel cherished, you feel like, well, I can't can't be that bad if this person wants to (laughs) (laughs) wants to spend their life with me and and that that effect whatever that is on your brain 
that influences your behavior throughout life. And it drives you to, you know, to pursue goals and to be responsible and eat your veg and, you know, all, all that stuff. So um, there's a lot of interesting facets to this. What did you think of the story, Liza? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that it's, marriage is really important, obviously. And I think that it does, does do a lot of um, good for society, right? You have a, if you have a stable family unit, um, you are able to divide and sort of conquer in terms of raising children and um, providing um, different um, kind of life lessons to them to, and give them sort of safety and all of that kind of stuff. So I think uh, it, marriage really helps with that kind of thing. Um, you also tend to have, you know, once again, division of labor. So you don't have one person doing all of the activities of daily living that it takes to raise a child from scratch, right? <laughs> so um, it, marriage is very important from that point of view. Historically, marriage is really important because of forming alliances. So not only if you think about the sort of concept of me against my brother, me again and my brother against my cousins, me, my brother, and my cousins against my the family and then the whole wide world, right? So it, alliances are made by sort of family ties and the very, very basic unit of that starts often with marriages and, and in, in marriage um, in, in, in the past, um, it wasn't necessarily done out of love for royal families and things like that or different tribals, but it was it, tribes, but it was in order to um, ma maintain the peace. Um, because if you had a marriage between, uh, you know, people from different tribes or different backgrounds, you wound up um, having peace treaties because you didn't want your family members to get um, hurt. Now, it, that's been tenuous at best because now 50% of marriages end in divorce, at least in the United States. Um, but, uh, and, and I don't know that marriages um, of convenience in, in, you know, the past in Europe actually didn't, you know, did a whole lot to save spilled blood because they wound up picking, picking fights over all sorts of stuff. Right. <laughs> so, um, but that's the, that, that was the point. And that, that is, that's, you know, sort of people say that there's an evolutionary benefit. Now, if you look about it at it from a completely different spec perspective in terms of love, you can talk about, you know, the physiologic responses that you have um, feeling safe or insecure and, um, you could get some feel-good hormones floating around in your brain, like uh, oxy, uh, oxytocin and and you know and some of the addictive stuff, uh, dopamine and things like that. So you can have some good feedback from that. But I don't know that anybody's ever quantifiably me measured love, right? And so that's actually kind of a key kind of thing. So how do you put your how do you put your um, scientific mind into the definition of what love is and how how love is measured or how love is um, how how love is scientifically proven to exist. And I think that that is actually much bigger than us um, and is a very positive force um, in relationships. And, and so I think that um, love is a very stabilizing thing. But you, there's not a real scientific way of approaching that idea. Uh, there, there are religious ways of approaching that idea, and that's what a lot of the religious um, sentiment about uh, marriage is. You know, you, it's a stabilizing force. It's a great force for um, raising children in a loving um, household and things like that. And, you know, some, it, some religions sort of look at or 
most religions look at marriage as a um, you know covenant between a man and a woman who love each other and are dedicated to their families. So um, that's that's the more of the religious kind of component versus the you know um, the scientific uh, evolutionary biology component. So all sorts of people have all sorts of things that they'd like to sort of address from both perspectives. Yeah, there's a lot here uh, to build, build on what you said. I think one thing that is is worth pointing out is that it is a value in a lot of religious contexts, but I think that's because <clears throat> religion's the organizing force for a lot of people, not as much in the West today, but for most of history and for most people in the world, this is sort of your bedrock, you know, your ethical bedrock, and it gives you your place in the world. And I think marriage probably became important in that setting because everybody realized well, if you go around having sex with anything and everything that strikes your fancy, things are not going to, right? I mean, that's why. A little bit of chaos sewn in there. Right, right. And I mean, I see I see stories. I don't know why, where these come from, but they show up in my Twitter feed and it's it's like some woman in her like early 30s. And she says, I fell in love with my husband's brother and I divorced my husband and now he's got cancer. Boo-hoo. It's like these really like tragic stories. Yes. And they're, and they're always tablet headlines. They're obviously meant to go, oh, I'm so much better than that person, you know. But yeah. if, if you take a case like that and you multiply it by, I don't know, 30 million people or whatever, or however, you know, however much, you know, how common infidelity is, whatever, it's a very destabilizing force, you know. You think yes, about think about if there's children involved, think about your productivity if you're thinking about your spouse out there fooling around on you. Very bad stuff. So I mean, even if you're not religious or if you don't really think a lot about these kind of questions. Obviously, it's enormously important to having a functioning, stable society. Stable. Yes, and I think it is. A family is a fundamental unit of society. So I think, I mean, and, and the human, one of the one of the things about marriage that I think is important is that it's, in a way, it's kind of self-sacrificial a little bit. You have, to, once again, you know, the whole vow about, you know, in sickness and health and this, that, and the other. It actually helps you transcend your selfish nature right mm-hmm. and so um that's one of the things that are that, that's valuable about it um and and it, if if you have society collectively sort of transcending their you know uh, uh selfish nature it helps it stay it's a stabilizing force and so i think uh ultimately it's a good um and uh i think that people have a uh under appreciation um about how important it is for uh, stable families and stable societies and things like that. And that's not necessarily just a, like a conservative versus, uh, you know, liberal thing. I think that uh, people who have happy marriages and happy families from both sides of the aisle can will attest to that, that, you know, it, it brings them a lot of, um, a lot of st- stability and joy. It's not political at all. It's just correct. And if anyone has a, a, an issue with that, then we can, we can talk about it more, but just think of it this way. You know, if you have a, a close friend or you have a circle of colleagues at work that you really get along with, you say, this person is like a brother to me. These people are like a family to me, right? Even, even your extended relationships that on a certain level are somewhat trivial and not really that significant, you define them in reference to family. Even if you have a dysfunctional family, like a lot of people do, yeah. you, might, you might find a mentor and say, this person is like a father to me, right? It's, it's just, it's sort of ingrained in your, in your nature, Yep. That, that this is sort of like, this is the engine for society. So I, I, it's interesting to approach it from a, an evolutionary point of view. It totally is. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, really good. So, so check out this, uh, check out this article. It's, it's psychology uh, today again, and um, no, no, and no knock on the author. It's just inevitable when you're talking about studying human psychology, it's necessarily qualitative, right? To get to your yeah. point about how you measure love. Well, you don't, right? You measure various hormones or you look at the behaviors that people engage in when they say they're in love, blah, blah, blah. It's just necessarily a little loosey goosey because you can't put humans in the lab at least if That's you're right. an ethical person, you can't, right? There's only so much experimentation that you can do unless you're, uh, you know, an insane uh, scientist right. or whatever. Um, anyways, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, our, our what's becoming a, a trend on this show. And, and again, in most of the world, and that's uh, RFK Jr.'s presidential campaign. So this is a story by a journalist named uh, Darius Tahir writing for Kaiser Health News. And... Um, they're, they're, it's. I feel like they're running out of stuff to to write about Kennedy, Liza, because now they're talking about specific segments of society that are endorsing him. And this one is about is about all of these Silicon Valley billionaires um, who are start, including a former Facebook executive, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, who are coming out and and publicly saying, "I'm voting for this guy. I think he's great." Um, and the, the the primary interest for from these folks seems to be they like his free speech rhetoric, especially. Like earlier in his career, he was he was more like put my political opponents in jail. But today he's like freedom, free markets, free speech. Right? He's he's very much playing to the audience he is trying to uh, to win votes from, and and this is um, attracting a lot of attention from from people who. And we'll get into this in a minute, like we we're talking about with Steve Kirsch a couple of weeks ago. This uh, this kind of uh, messaging appeals to a lot of these people. Um, now the, the author notes that some people in Silicon Valley are uh, are not impressed with this guy, and they're kind of confused as to why their their colleagues or you know fellow investors, what have you, are interested in this guy. Um, and and um, to hear quotes, uh, what's his name? Robert Nelson. He's a biotech investor with a company called uh, Arc Venture Partners. So this is what he says about Kennedy. He says, "I think he is a lower intellect, democratic version of Donald Trump." So he attracts libertarian-leaning, anti-woke, in quotes, socially liberal folks as a protest vote. Uh, He says, I think he's a dangerous conspiracy theorist who has contributed to many deaths with his anti-vaccine lies. Now, the author goes on and sums up, I think this is actually, of all the media reporting I've seen about Kennedy, I think this actually gets close to explaining why uh, he is where he is. And he's talking about He's, he's trying to answer the question, why do people in Silicon Valley, which doesn't seem like a very, you know, pro-freedom, I guess, you know, conservative part right. of the world. Right. Um, Tahir says, there's a deeply held anti-establishment ethos among many tech leaders. Excuse me. I'm sorry. This is a quote from uh, uh, Margaret O'Meara. She's at, uh, she's a historian at the University of Washington. Washington University of Washington. Yeah. 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 Excuse my, my mix up there. Uh, but uh, she goes on and says, there's a suspicion of authority, disdain for gatekeepers and traditionalists, dislike of bureaucracies of all kinds. This too has its roots in the counterculture era and the 1960s anti-war movement, which of course, and they note this in the story, the hotbed of this was the San Francisco Bay Area. Of course, you had UC Berkeley, which is a very crazy place. If you've never been, just go and check it out. If you're feeling down, just there's some strange folks there. You'll <laughs> you'll get a kick out of it. Um, but yeah, there was, you know, all I mean, the anti-war movement during the, the Vietnam era. You had, you know, free love, drug use, like every everything that's that's <laughs> sorry. Summer of love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
everything that's bad long term for society, it was its advocates were hanging out in my neighborhood, and they still are, unfortunately. Um, but but interesting. That's an interesting insight. So so let's jump off with that. What it, what was your take on this? Do you think there's any validity to this analysis here? Um, well, yeah, I think there is validity to that analysis. What I, what I am a little disappointed in is we we've talked on several episodes about you know bullying, and so when you you will. The, the, the comments that um, about low intellectual, um, it, it really turns off people. So when when people are you know assigned that kind of um, rhetoric, they they understandably turn off and stop listening to you. So if they, I think that one of the mistakes that people are making around RFK Jr. is they are not um, the tech bros he will talk to and they will talk to him. Mm-hmm. And people who are disagreeing with RFK Jr. won't talk to him and won't talk to the tech bros. So he has, and they, the claim is that they don't want to platform him because he's not a scientist or he's not a, you know, an you know, doesn't know anything about epidemiology, doesn't know anything about vaccines, you know, all of this kind of stuff. It's interesting, though, because um, the same group of people who don't want to talk to him about vaccines will believe him when it comes to the environmental claims that he makes. And so um, it's it's a really interesting dynamic to watch, right? And I think that it would, society would benefit from actually having a conversation with him so that the tech bros, like, you know, like the Silicon Valley folks, actually hear the other side of this story because they're getting his side of the story only and not the other side. It's just trust us, we're medicine. And then that that group of people are like, well, wait, no, it's big pharma that's pushing this. And that, you know, the whole sort of industry discussion gets in there, which RFK Jr. likes to promote as well for his own agenda. Um, but um, the, the anti-industry sentiment comes up. And what's really interesting about that is these, these guys are all Silicon Valley is its own industry. And and they're being they're perceived um, to be have have you know not behaved honorably in freedom of speech discussions most recently, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so it's it's a very interesting um, scenario to watch develop. Now, the other thing that um, is really fascinating about these Silicon Valley folks is um, uh, they are using lots of sort of supplements. So one of them says he never wants to die. I've heard him say this. He tweeted about it, and he's doing he's doing all sorts of things to never die. Well, unfortunately, you know, we're all born with a terminal illness, and <laughs> we will. We're you know, 100%. There's only one way out, right? Right. Uh, so, so it was. Yeah, life's 100% fatal. Um, but you know, you can do things to make things better. But they they are following often um, off the uh, mainstream advice for treating conditions. And so they take a lot of supplements, take a lot of vitamins, take a lot of, they, they follow a lot of kind of alternative medicine belief. And um, it's interesting. I think when you are very smart and you have a scientific background, you might under or overestimate your understanding of things like medicine or things like, you know, pharmaceuticals and things like that. And so you will, people often fall for a lot of the 
baloney out there when mm-hmm. it comes to alternative medicine. So, um, you know, I, th- I think that the, it, it benefits, you know, some people who sell snake oil a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but I think that, for example, Steve Jobs, right? Brilliant guy huge company. Um, he was diagnosed with a neuroendocrine tum- tumor, so a very unusual kind of pancreatic cancer. I want to say in the early 2000s, maybe it might have been, and he, he could have, it was entirely treatable, but he decided to go the alternative medicine route to treat it on his own, mm-hmm. and he wound up, you know, eventually needing a liver transplant because it metastasized and that didn't, and then, and then you know, he, he died and he died an untimely death because he felt like taking the alternative medicine route with supplements and vitamins and, you know, a, a variety of different experimental techniques was going to be better than, you know, the, the standard of care. Um, and the standard of care is established by doing randomized double-blind controlled studies. Um, it's also, you know, has a better outcome. Otherwise, you wouldn't give people, you know, if, you, if vitamins or coffee enemas or whatever cured cancer, we'd be a lot better, <laughs> you know. Uh, you'd see that. You see people selling that stuff all the time. I think Goop has a, a, a machine that they sell for a couple hundred dollars. I don't know how much it is, but it, you know, it, these are these are theories that have made their way into the popular mindset, um, and the distrust of pharma and the distrust of the house of medicine, and that, and, and quite frankly, that you know, desire not to have to use chemotherapy because it's chemotherapy is really hard. Um, is is it drives a lot of this alternative medicine practice. And so you're seeing that with these guys who have, who are brilliant, they're smart, um, and they have scientific backgrounds. So they often ask, overestimate what their understanding of medicine is. Just like doctors who are smart and have scientific backgrounds <laughs> overestimate their understanding of agriculture. So um, I think it's a human condition. And the best way to deal with it is to have open, honest, discourse, um, you know, and in free speech. And so I think, uh, and I think that the perception that RFK Jr. Uh, was, um, had, had, wasn't allowed to talk publicly, taking him off channels and things like that really drove a lot of people into his camp. There's no doubt about that. And, and what I found, I alluded to this a minute ago, you know, it seems that you have a grasp, this author does at least, you have a grasp of why this guy appeals to so many people. Incidentally, it's funny, you know, they're like, he appeals to libertarians and, and like hardcore leftists and people in the middle. And, you know, so it's like, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to isolate him and make him this fringe character. But in the process, (laughs) you're making it clear that he has wide support from people who don't agree on anything else, except that this guy is the least bad option of all the ones that that they could vote for. So I think that's funny, but the follow-up and the more important point is that, okay, so he has this sort of anti-establishment kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a persona that he's built for himself. But the obvious follow-up is why is he attracting these people? You know, it's like, why is there such widespread, uh, widespread disdain, disdain for gatekeepers and bureaucrats? You know, why is this wild card anti-vaccine, anti-pharma, anti-lockdown guy, why is his message resonating and we've talked a lot about that in the in the last few weeks. I mean, the, the the double standards and the absurdity 
you know, vaccine mandates for these people, your young children, not for my political allies. You got to wear a mask. You can't eat dinner inside. I can because I'm rich and powerful. You know, it, it's like, you know, these rallies are okay because we like them. Your mom's funeral, sorry, there's a deadly virus. It's, it's just like, it's absurd. You know, there's all of these preposterous things that have gone on and are still going on in some, some cases. And these reporters who are covering him, they're like, oh, this is an interesting phenomenon. Well, it's because everyone's a conspiracy theorist. It's like, no, man, no. That's exactly right. And that's the same thing with the with the Trump crowd. You know, people, they're, they're condescending to people who have real legitimate questions and issues and things like that. And the casualty I think of this whole thing is is science and and vaccines, and I think that that is that is a huge tragedy, the likes of which we're we're going to see repercussions for for decades. Because he does have he does have you know anti-vaccine people who who will who are advising children not to get or parents not to give their children the measles vaccines, and that results in death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and 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 that's a really tr- preventable thing, you know, with polio making a comeback um, not too long ago and, and finding it in New York, that's a that's a big, huge problem. That's a big, huge problem. And it's a really unfortunate that, um, you know, that, that people are felt have felt so marginalized by the scientific community that they don't trust it anymore. And I think it's uh, really incumbent for um, scientists to try to have civil cordial conversations with people who disagree with them um, in order to try to um, explain that how important these advances are to to the the, the lifestyles that lifestyles that we've become accustomed to you know we're not used to seeing you know kids die under the age of five of vaccine preventable illness we're not used to seeing kids not have access to clean water and this is in the west but um you know it's it, it, it's unfortunate um, the vitriol that's gone around about this stuff, and I think if we had been kinder and we had um, more open conversations with people instead of calling them low intellect, for example, right. uh, I think that we would have been more successful. It's it's a simple lesson, I think. Um, you know, if you have any semblance of uh, convincing people of anything in your life, then you know this. It's it's intuitive, I think that you don't condescend to people you're you're not rude to them because you're trying exactly. to get their compliance with with whatever it is you know whether you're trying to sell them a product or you want them to do something it, I, like I, I don't know it's it's just strange and a related issue that i want to talk about real quick before we move on mm-hmm. is this idea that he's a conspiracy theorist and everything's a conspiracy and everyone's a conspiracist i the the term has lost all value and all meaning i think and it's not because there there aren't weird things that people really believe that aren't true. Of course that's true. But the problem is, is that there's been legitimate things that have occurred that were conspiracies that have been borne out that just a couple of years ago, we were all told, Oh, this is, this is right. This you're from the fever swamps. If you believe this, this is some moonshine run and hillbilly, not like, (laughs) and and like the, the two most obvious examples that have been in the news. Well, one of them is obvious. Of course, that's the lab leak. We were all told, This is absurd. You can't believe this. And as time goes on, we'll probably never know for sure. But it seems much more likely than it than it did two years ago 
that yeah. this is where this virus originated. And of course, there have been all these documents leaked. You have these high-level virologists and high-level officials at um, NIH and uh, NIAID, Tony Fauci's old agency. Yep. And they're talking about how they're going to manipulate the media so they get off the trail of the lab leak. And they say in the course of these discussions, this is highly likely, but the political implications and the fallout are, it's are be too high. Right, right. This is this is incendiary. We need to get off this. And since we can't know for sure either way, let's push this proximal origins idea, the zoo, this zoonosis spillover. Yeah. And and so, like, in other words, you have that happen where you tell people, shut up, conspiracy theorists. Oh, by the way, that thing I told you was a lie. It's actually highly likely to have occurred. Highly likely. And we then, don't know for sure. And that's yeah. what they should have said from the beginning. We don't know. We don't know for sure. Right. We it could have been. We're looking into it, but it's you know it's the same thing as it. Once again, if you, uh, people are forgiving, if they understand, if you have the humility to to just say, hey, you know, we're all in this together. We're learning about this together. Um, we're not sure. Um, but it, but when it comes in, you know, from on high, um, and any discussion about it, well, it's kind of odd that it came out of this city, where the, you know, and the first cases were right around this institute, you know, that's a kind of logical leap, right? So, to, and once again, this is not saying that that somebody did something on purpose and that it was nefarious, but if it's discovered to have been a actual lab leak and it's been suppressed that information as opposed to openly discussed as a possibility um then people think then people think that you all are part of the conspiracy right, right. Yeah. so they the people that are being called conspiracy theorists because they have these these logical questions and they've been completely shut down when they see emails like that all of a sudden they're like you guys are the conspiracy yeah. <laughs> so it really it really sows division um, in, in the population and, and we could have handled st this so much better. We could have handled this so much better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the way it's being handled now is, uh, it's, it's just one big cope. I'm, I'm seeing it from a lot of academics and a lot of people in medicine. They're starting to set up the discussion now as, well, it doesn't matter how it originated because we have to, you know, the public health response is what it should have. It's like, look, man, there may not have been a pandemic if this was not going on. That's the question that you need to address. And as a community of scientists and science writers and communicators, whatever we're going to call ourselves, we have to blow the whistle on this. And that's not yeah. happening. We're just, we're trying to like, well, we're not going to talk about it or we're going to reframe it. And we're going to circle the wagons because I'm on team scientist and yeah. I'm not going to, you know what I mean? It's like. And if this, you want anybody to believe your science, you better, you have to have, you have to have. The, once again, humility to say, I don't know, if you don't know, um, you know, you have to have the humility, the, the, the openness to have a, a reasonable discussion. And once again, you had people from the same, with, with un, unbelievable credentials, full professors, tenure, huge amount of research, you know, be arguing with each other. And one side of it was completely shut down. And, and, and once again, the ordinary, ordinary people, can't figure out who's telling the truth um, no. or, or, you know, as it, the truth with this kind of thing, we were learning as it was going on. And so, so we, people got very, very upset and very, very angry. So I think that, that that's, that's an issue. And now they don't, and now they, 
they believe people who engage with them. So RFK Jr. engages with them and mm-hmm. it, it acknowledges their anger. And and so does, you know, so do people like Peter McCullough, who also is, you know, selling all sorts of supplements and, you know, stuff that's not not tested um, and making all sorts of ridiculous claims. But he's got a huge following um, because he he's engaged with them. And once again, if we we as scientists and science communicators need to maybe look at them and sort of reevaluate how we've approached this um, because it's really unfortunate. I hate, I hate to see people and kids die of vaccine preventable illnesses because um, you know, because we weren't willing to engage. It's a, it's a very, very important point. And I know we're keeping, keeping talking about this, but it is, it's, it's needed. So I, a lot of podcasts I listen to, because um, I'm trying to keep track of what what's going on on these issues that we cover, and it's multiple times now I've been listening to shows where I hear people saying, you know, Kennedy says this, no one will talk to him, and this makes a lot of sense to me. And one of the examples was uh, the polio vaccine mutating and giving kids polio, and that sounds truly horrifying if you're not familiar with it. But I was like. You know, oh, we lost the voice. There we go. I didn't hear you. So okay. I didn't hear the last bit. It all sounds familiar. The hosts on these shows are saying you need to talk to Kennedy because he's making a lot of sense to me. And the points they're bringing up are, you know, he says the polio vaccine gives kids polio. And now there's an answer to that. There's all kinds of studies that have been done. There's all sorts of commentary, but the people who need to hear that stuff they don't read the New England Journal of Medicine. They don't watch Debunk the Funk. You know, they don't follow Kevin Fulta on Twitter. I wish they did all those things. That'd be great, but they don't. And so their their ecosystem, their media the media ecosystem, it's filled with you know a handful of podcasters and and you know celebrities on Twitter or whatever. And all they're hearing is that this Kennedy guy is making good points, and you won't talk to him. You'll call him crazy, and you'll you know you'll you know, whatever you'll quote some misinformation expert or whatever, but you have to, you have to go into these settings and it's hard to do and you have to address yeah. these issues. And you can't be, yeah, you can't be afraid of, of the setting, right? So one of the things that I try to do is get onto some of these uh, Twitter spaces with large followings. So at least there's some voice in the wilderness out there that somebody can realize that they feel like they can at least ask questions and have a dialogue, but they're hearing something a little bit different. And so if, if there were any way we could get on, some of us could get on like Joe Rogan or some that, somebody with a big following and, and discuss, and I, I mean, Joe Rogan asked Peter Hotez, and I think Peter Hotez got, I love Peter Hotez. He's a, he's a great scientist. He's a dedicated father. He's got, he's the, the, the whole vaccine program that he developed for the developing world is it's really really neat um and he's been on joe rogan before but i i I think he's he it it would be wonderful to have somebody like him or paul offit or in paul offit's you know fda so he may not be able to i don't know what the rules are about that but it'd be wonderful for people to get on good scientists or good communicators to get on and answer hard questions in front of people um paul offit does do exactly that. Um, you know, he's he's does a lot of podcasting and a lot of uh, uh, discussions with people who have have questions. And I think he's one of the few people who do. Um, uh, but I, I like to see people with higher numbers of followers actually engaging in discussion with people who disagree with them. 
Um, you know, I talked to, I've talked to Robert Malone. Uh, I've talked to Peter McCullough. <laughs> I've talked to, and I, I think that it's kind of interesting that they, when they started talking to me, they kind of maybe decided that they might want to disengage a little bit because yeah. <laughs> so, so it was, um, and so I'm, I'm open to talking to people and I don't look at it as giving them a platform. I think it's giving us or presenting people with the other side of the argument that's so valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because when you do that, and this is the, the, the genius part of it is like when you're willing to do that, in many cases, they, they back down. You know, I know you had that one conversation debate with Steve Kirsch, but there was an effort to set up a bigger sort of a panel debate with multiple experts with unique, yep. like very highly specialized expertise. And he backed off that and he made excuses and he, right. So if mm -hmm. you were to make a concerted effort and say, we'll talk to you, let's do this. And if everybody yep. did that, I think it would become clear very quickly. They don't want to have that discussion. And if they do, they're going to look foolish because they're wrong. It's, it's just not correct. And you can tell you can tell them that they're wrong in a way that doesn't make it does it that isn't um isn't you know doesn't make you seem like you're you know shutting them down or censoring them or it, that doesn't play into the narrative that they've they've brought along with them right yeah so you can you can have a real conversation with them um, yeah and then people are like oh that's kind of interesting but I wish we could I wish we could get onto something like Joe Rogan. Um, and amplify the message that way. Cause I think a lot of skeptics listen to Joe Rogan and I'd love, you know, I'd love to talk to Brett Weinstein or, and, or not me, not just me there. I'd love to have a group of people talk to them and have a, you know, cordial conversation with skeptics. So. It'd be good. It'd be amazing. I would love to, I'd pay for that. I'd pay for that. That'd be a good pay-per-view. Yeah. Um, final thing I want to say before we move on. And um, I'm really passionate about this. Sorry, but um and as, as recently as July, 2021, the Biden administration said, we're not going to mandate vaccines. That's not what, that's not the government's job, you know? And for, for the months preceding that Kennedy and Mike Adams and Mercola, all these goofballs were saying, not only was the pandemic plan, this it's all engineered so they can push their, their global vaccine agenda. And they're going to force these shots on you and your kids. And of course, everyone came out and said, oh, that's absurd, man. Like, what a crazy conspiracy. And then the president comes out two months later and says, if you don't get this, you're fired. And and it's like, you know, it's just another example. But it, it's like of how things went yeah. back and forth and back and forth. And yeah, and people, yeah, people had all sorts of questions and issues and things like that. And yeah. OK, that's all we're going to say. I'll just I'll just get more. <laughs> angry and incendiary unless we go on to this. So <laughs> our final story of the day, rethinking sustainability, does the nutritional value of dairy offset the environmental impact of milk production? Uh, this was a great story. This is from a website called uh, Dairy Reporter. They're talking about a study that was published in the Journal of Dairy Science, which I think is affiliated with the trade group, full disclosure. So, you know, this is not coming from people who are just so like, hey, I'll write a study about, about milk. <laughs> But nonetheless, there's some interesting observations in here. So um, the story is talking about a study that looked at the nutritional value that we get out of milk compared to the environmental impact of producing it. And they point out that a lot of studies that came beforehand, they tend to focus on the, um, the carbon emissions and the methane emissions that come from uh, the dairy industry, but they don't actually look at, which seems pretty obvious to me as a consumer, why do we you know, produce all this milk. 
And the answer they come up with, it's enormously useful as, as a nutrient. It's loaded with vitamins. Um, and as we'll talk about in a minute, it's related to meat production as well. These are, these are key sources of nutrition. We talked a little bit about this last week, in fact. Um, but they point out that when you balance the equation, so to speak, and you look at um, everything that goes into producing dairy and all of the benefits we get out of it, on balance, it's better to keep producing dairy because of the rich source of nutrients it is. And if you were to eliminate it, as again, as we've said before, the carbon impact or the, the greenhouse impact is, is very, very tiny. It's, it's on a global scale, it's insignificant. It's not going to you know, change the world or whatever. Um, and let's see, we could, we could go on. There's some more specific points, um, but that's, that's, that's the setup is that this is an enormously important source of food, not just for us in, in the West, but especially in the developing world, as you've said on multiple occasions, Culturally, meat and milk are very, very important to a lot of people. Um, it's these are not going to go away unless you start like a, you know, we're gonna we're gonna come down and shut your farm down and right. That's that's the only way this is going to happen. So if you want to start a civil war, <laughs> there you go. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but but go ahead. I'm sure you have a lot to say. So yeah, I don't. I I feel like dairy needs a a motto. Like they they had a fantastic campaign in the 90s called got milk and they would all all these you know people would be drinking real milk not not plant-based milk not you know all that stuff they'd be drinking real milk they'd all have a little milk mustache and they'd go and you know do the benefits of you know dairy drinking and I think that was a really really good campaign and I think they need to revitalize something like that because people people are thinking that plant-based milk or what they call milk like almond and a variety of other plant-based milks um, are somehow better for the environment now you know sometimes uh, babies who have lactose intolerance and things like that um, will drink a soy based thing and that's important for nutrition too but that doesn't necessarily translate into you need to have all these tree nuts making your milk because um, that has a big environmental impact as well. I mean, in California, when they grow a lot of almond trees, almonds are wonderful. I'm not knocking the almond industry at all, but it takes a lot, a lot of water to be able to, you, you know, have those trees and then make what they call a milk. Now, the, 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 they're not going to have, unless that's fortified, they're not going to have levels of B12 and riboflavin and um, it, soluble calcium, absorbable calcium that, that milk produces and, and milk is a really, really important source of, you know, amino acids, which are building blocks for proteins and things like that. So it's, um you know, it's, it's mother nature's nutrient, right? It's for, it's the, in mother nature created it for babies to start out with. So it's a really, really, um, and it's, and what's fascinating about like breast milk, just in general, when you're, when mothers are nursing, they, they are, they, they, it adapts to the, the specific needs of the baby as, as the baby gets a little bit bigger. Um, it starts out being largely colostrum, so you've got, you know, uh, a lot of antibodies in there, and, and so it helps babies uh, be, you know, have a, an immune defense when, as a neonate, but then it, then it starts getting richer in uh, a variety of other different uh, nutrients as, as the baby grows, so it, it meets the needs of babies. It's, it's the, it's, it, it's, really one of the perfect nutrients out there. And I think that there are 
um, too many people saying it's, you know, not environmentally friendly, but it is, if you think about it, it's plant-based. Once again, a cow is taking grass that we cannot eat and converting it into a high quality protein loaded with vitamins that we need to take. Um, you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's a wonderful source of nutrients. It's healthy. Um, oh, and you know, it, it, dairy just in general, we read a couple couple weeks ago about how, um, you know, two scoops of ice cream a week may decrease <laughs> your incidence of di- developing diabetes. <laughs> So that that, keep, that association keeps on showing up in these Harvard studies that they're trying not to show people too much. So I'm a big fan of dairy, big fan of dairy. And I think that it's really, really, uh, it, it, especially in the developing world, world where there is not a lot of access to protein-rich uh, uh, food. I think that's really, really a, important to have as part of a balanced diet. That's actually one of the points that they make in this this study, um, which is a pretty dense read. So if you don't want to get into it, I don't blame you folks. But one of the points they make is that in developing countries, they don't have um, isolated dairy and beef industries. And and it's still the case here. Like some of our some of the meat we consume, I think the USDA says it's up to 15 percent of the beef we eat. It comes from from dairy cattle because the cows get old and they can't produce milk but they still can be turned into a quality steak or whatever. So um, that's magnified in the developing world where you have, I think they called it a um, like not dual use, but something to that effect. They have, they have their milk and their beef industries are the same cows basically. So you have farmers milking cows and then slaughtering them later on. This is an important source of nutrients. And so just getting rid of this, or I, I don't know like what the eat Lancet people actually envision happening. You know, I, yeah. I, they're just up there on their panels dictating how everyone else yeah. is going to live and someone else gets to figure out how to implement it. I'm not sure. Um, That's exactly right. And taking down researchers who demonstrate the health, health benefits of, of, you know, beef and, and milk and stuff like that. They, they've not been, once again, they've shut those people down. And yeah. that's, that's, yeah, that's not a good thing. Yeah, it's it's transparently dumb um, what's going on here. And as good as the study is, it, it's it, like they it, they got a broad swath of data. They've got global, national, and even local data in here. They're looking at all of the relevant questions. I've seen a lot of studies where they try to calculate emissions from food production, but then their model says that each country produces all the food it needs, and that inflates the emissions by orders of magnitude because. We trade. Global trade is a thing. Some places are good yeah. at producing other things than what we produce here. And then you trade. And that's one of the, the uh, externalities of that, to use a sexy economic term, is lowered emissions because, you know, the weather in one place is better or they're just really good at growing bananas or whatever. And so mm-hmm. you you let them grow it, then you buy it. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. Point is, it's a really good study. But what I'm concerned about is that the data really don't matter because the people that want to get rid of meat they, they're worried about a climate crisis. Climate change is real. That's not what I'm saying, everybody. Um, this is a, an existential struggle to, for, for them, right? They're not thinking this in terms of, well, let's look at the latest article in the Journal of Dairy Science, and then we'll, yeah. you know, right? And let me, this is a quote. I, I had to double check this because it's frankly shocking, but this is from the Los Angeles Times in 1989. It's a biologist. He's with the National, he was with the National Park Service. His name is David Graber, and he's uh-huh. reviewing a book by an environmentalist named Bill McKibben. It's a pretty big name, big climate activist. Um, but he wrote a book in the 80s that was really influential. 
And this goes to what I was talking about last week, that, that they have this view of humans as just one species among others. And that's not just me. I wanted to look it up. So he says, he says, McKibben is a biocentrist and so am I. We are not interested in the utility of a particular species or free, uh, or free flowing river or ecosystem to mankind. They have intrinsic value, more value to me than another human body or a billion of them. Human happiness and certainly human fecundity are not as important as a wild and healthy planet. And then he goes on, he says, I know social scientists who remind me that people are part of nature, but it isn't true. Somewhere along the line, at a billion years ago, maybe half that, we quit the contract and became a cancer. We have become a plague upon ourselves and upon the earth. That's that nuts. That like nuts. Yeah, that is okay. nuts, and that drives behavior that is absolutely unacceptable. Because he, who is he? Who is he volunteering or volunteering <laughs> to, um, you know, decrease? You know, it, you know. As far as I'm concerned, I think that you know that I personally think that you know, people are valuable and wonderful and they've, they've, they've got such amazing um, innovations have come out of the human existence that we can make um, other people's lives wonderful. Right. And I think that, um, I think that going back to mother nature and, you know, just survival of the fittest, he's in a pretty uh, comfy situation to be, you know, making claims about what people whether or not people are cancer and, and comparing people to cancer, I think is uh, really, really uh, gets you put on a path that leads to uh, some pretty awful behavior. Yeah. When you think about it, and again, it's so funny because these are the same people who will go on about, about racism and about white supremacy yeah. and all of these, right. Those are very bad things. Don't get me wrong. But no, at the same time, at the same time, you're talking about mistreating your fellow man because of the way they look or where they're from or yeah. whatever. You're going to go on and call all of humanity a cancer. And I'm I'm sitting here, you know, as as a father, and I'm like, like, so my young son is a cancer on the planet because he drinks it's, milk, you know? Yeah. It's like how what the balls on these people? Excuse my language. <laughs> I just can't. I can't. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Yeah. It's like, but I think it's I think it's eye opening, and I think people need to be aware that that you know there are some people who think that way, and I think that when we are looking at making environmental policies, and the, we don't take into account the impact that that has on human health, and I'll point out that you know in the West, you know pe people are like oh, there's overpopulation, there's overpopulation, population decline has has started precipitously mm -hmm. in, in China in Japan, in, in the West, um, you know, so I'm not sure that, I think if you feed people and you uh, give them the benefits that modern society has given them because of these public health advances, um, they can go to school, they can, you know, they, they start having fewer and fewer babies instead of, instead of, you know, telling them uh, you, you all need to start. <laughs> Yeah. So it, it's funny, if, you know, if you give people the tools um, and resources to um, survive and have their children survive, um, they tend to slow down on the reproduction. And I think that's clearly demonstrated across the West. 
Yeah, the, and this is this is the paradox, and it connects to our first story, interestingly enough, because for a variety of reasons, you know, economic development is one of them, but for a lot of political reasons, people for for many years have been, I don't know, not coerced is the wrong word, but they have been prompted to have fewer children and to put off marriage and to live your best life. You only live once, blah, 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 right? So as a result of this, you have the population declining seriously to the, like to the point where it'll be a problem at some point. I, I, replacement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I saw it was, it was a BBC story. It was a story, a study from last year, I want to say, but it was a team of demographers or whatever, whatever team of social scientists who look at this and they said, this is really concerning. We're just going to run out of people at some point, you know? So who's going to stock the grocery store shelves? Who's going to pave the roads? Who's going to build the houses, right? This these are concerning questions. And they said, well, you know, immigration is one possible answer. Um, but the, as you pointed out, population is going to decline in those places as they get wealthier too. So that's not a permanent solution. You know, so it's like, in other words, all these, these eco-fundamentalists or whatever you want to call them, they're wrong about everything. You know, the world is supposed to be underwater, right? We're going to be underwater in 2018. You're all going to burn to death. Everyone's going to starve. And there's too many people. They're wrong about everything. So and they've been saying that since right. Malthus, right? right? So it's been, yeah, it's been, people, yes, people like to fear monger, and um, they don't, they, they, they underestimate the the capability of the human mind to be, uh, you know, problem solvers. Um, and so I think that, uh, uh, yeah, I, when I, I guess one of the ways I look at things is if there's needs to be a huge emergent intervention that all of society needs to participate in otherwise it's a doomsday um then i think maybe maybe we aren't thinking this quite through maybe <laughs> maybe we need to just pause a little bit and maybe look at the look at outcomes look look at outcomes look at look at what happened to sri lanka when it when it went out organic that's an outcome. And, and that should give everybody in the world who is making this great food transformation discussion um, into policy, they should see that's an evidence-based agricultural outcome. We talk about evidence-based medicine all the time. So we should we need to look at outcomes for uh, things. And, and pharmaceutical companies are held to a rigor that is exceptionally high, as as our ag companies, when they're doing their testing and things like that, bringing people or bringing um, bringing uh, people products that benefit them. So, uh, so if if we're going to say that you know there needs to be a big intervention, um, that that should be tested. And if it, and it, and it, if the outcome is not so good, and we can demonstrate that it's not so good, um, then you should you sh it shouldn't happen. So. You know, going all organic overnight, getting rid of fertilizers and stuff like that. That's a really, really terrible um, idea. <laughs> and we, people were told that it was a terrible idea um, and they chose to ignore it because they thought they knew better. And um, ordinary Sri Lankans are the ones that suffer, suffer for that. And, you know, people, uh, you know, all across sub-Saharan Africa and Asia who can least afford to um, uh, it, the impacts of these these uh, policies uh, are, are they're the ones who really, really suffer. Not, not the person behind the keyboard saying that people are a cancer. It's uh it's disgraceful. I mean, we're talking about kids going hungry, just, you yeah. know, if you have yeah, kids exactly. or, you know, think what it's like, imagine your kids not having enough food yeah, to the point where their health suffers or they die. That's what we're talking about here. Um, 
And again, back to my point about hypocrisy earlier, I don't really think a lot of these people believe that we're on the verge of collapse Mm. because of the way that they live. You know, do you think at NRDC's uh, state-of-the-art headquarters in New York City, you don't think the AC is on there in New York City summer? I can guarantee you the AC is on. Those people are not uncomfortable. They're Um, not uncomfortable. Right. As, People as, flying on their planes, yeah. on their private jets to yeah. climate conferences, telling ordinary people that they are immoral for having a steak for dinner. Yeah. Once a week. Yeah. And then and then you have the, oh, who was it? John Kerry, right? Who said, I've never owned a plane. I mean, my wife did and I flew on it, but it's like, it's like you guys are, I don't know. Is it, I mean, is, is it hard to see why everyone hates your guts is because of this? It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, anyways, I, I got off on the rant there. I'm sorry. I feel That's like okay. I'm, I'm leading you down a dark path, Liza, my bad. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't mind going down that path. Um, that okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, it's, it's just, I think the point, the positive point we're making is that there's a lot of smart people who are really good at making life better. And the way we live today, even if you're just like a lower middle income person, you live better in the United States anyway, better than most royalty did throughout history in terms of your access to technology and food. It's enormous. We've made great progress. I just am still deeply frustrated by the fact that it's, you know, the upper crust of society that lives the best. Yes. So in doubt about these technologies that have made their lives possible and that are advocating for a return to this romanticized notion of subsistence farming and free vaccines and oh yeah yeah no no antibiotics all that kind of stuff it's it's really it's very disconcerting yeah yeah all all natural immunity to uh you know whatever <laughs> devastating diseases yes and yes natural immunity works but you don't want to have a whole bunch of people die you know, by when you can boost the immune system, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so all natural bacterial infections and diarrhea, and yeah. uh, it's great. Cholera, cholera is oh. all natural. Polio is all natural. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awful stuff. All right. Well, I hope you guys have a terrific week. Thank you for joining us. As always, follow us on Twitter. In the meantime, at Dr. Liza MD at CamJ English at Genetic Literacy Project, because they put this whole thing on for us, as I say every week. And with that, we will see you next time for episode 229. Take care. See ya.